Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of suicide that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. If you or a loved one are experiencing suicidal thoughts, resources are available through the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. The summer wind gnawed gently at Sylvie as she clung to the rocks in front of her, but she hung on, even as the cold wall of the chateau sent shivers through her body. She grasped the stones one after another, finding improvised handholds as she ascended. As her strength waned, she struggled to shut out the noise of car horns blaring in the distance. With each new step, she thought to herself, if Claude can do it, so can I. After what felt like an eternity, Sylvie pulled herself to the roof of Chateau du Clermont. The July sun beat down on her bare skin as she looked out over La Cellier. She stepped gently to the edge of the tower, her feet still slick with sweat. There, Sylvie balanced on the precipice for a moment like a statue, naked, a rose clenched in her teeth. She took a few deep breaths, steeling herself for what came next. Then she thought, as she often did, of the end of the world, the beautiful apocalypse. Then, all of a sudden, there was a scream. The shrill noise startled Sylvie. Her feet slipped, and she fell. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults, a ParCast original. Every Tuesday, we take a look at a cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Cults for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Cults in the search bar. 
At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. In this one-part episode, we're taking a deep dive into the Neofar sect, or New Lighthouse, a cult that operated in France from 2001 to 2004. The group believed that, after the apocalypse, humanity would ascend to heaven with the help of aliens. This ascension could only be possible with the help of their founder, Arnaud Moussy. Today, we'll discuss Moussy's life and what may have led him to found Neofar, as well as the deadly circumstances that led to the cult's eventual downfall. Arnaud Moussy and his twin brother, Oliver, were born in 1968 in boulogne a suburb of Paris. From an early age, the Moussis were deeply intrigued by religious studies, philosophy, and numerology. These interests pushed Arnaud Moussy to travel in search of esoteric knowledge. In his 20s, he began hitchhiking around Argentina. While he trekked, he read voraciously. Around 1995, he came across some books written by André Bujanek. Bujanek claimed he was the reincarnation of Jesus Christ. His cult, Far West, or Lighthouse West, pursued the linguistic and semantic study of philosophy. Using esoteric numbers he derived from the French language, he attempted to decipher the Word of God. He even developed his own numerological system to do this, known as the Kabbalah Francaise. The more Moussy read about Bujanek, the more intrigued he became by the Kabbalah Francaise. He wasn't the only one. At some point in his travels, he married an unnamed woman who apparently shared his fascination with the arcane. In 1997, she and Moussy, along with his twin brother, Oliver, officially joined Far West to meet Bouchenek. Moussy, now 29, was eager to dive deeper into numerology with Bouchenek. This pseudoscientific study of numbers is often employed to search for hidden meanings in the world by extrapolating numbers from names, dates, and other sources. These numbers are then combined using a variety of obscure calculations. In numerology, each number has a certain vibrational or spiritual quality. By reducing concepts to their base number, proponents claim numerology can be used to reveal the truth of things. Moussi and Bouchenek connected passionately over the subject. As Moussi became more deeply involved in Bouchenek's cult, he found it was almost more of a literary society. The group was dedicated more to study and worship rather than to accomplishing any theological or political goals. For a while, Moussi reveled in the discussions. He was especially enthralled by Bouchenek and would do anything to please his new mentor. Soon, Moussi declared that he, too, had been reincarnated. According to Moussi, he was actually the Apostle James, reborn. Vanessa is going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. It's possible that Moussi took on the role of a reincarnated saint to find his place in the Far West group. French sociologist Émile Durkheim described religion as the social and psychic phenomena that arises when groups of people search for a consciousness greater than their own. Regardless of what he truly believed, Moussi was soon Bouchenek's right-hand man. 
He was more committed than many of the other cultists and quickly won them over with his good-natured, charming personality. He was fond of jokes and never seemed to take himself too seriously, in spite of his lofty claims about reincarnation. Moussi endeared himself to Bougenac further by following the man's teachings to the letter. Though nominally Christian, Far West's belief system differed from the mainstream in many distinct ways. Most notably, members believed that the apostles of Jesus were romantic couples. They had a sex-positive view of salvation and believed it was necessary for someone to find their soulmate in order to achieve eternal life. The cult also believed in the conspiracy popularized by the novel The Da Vinci Code. The book contended that St. Mary Magdalene, an early follower of Christ, was actually Jesus's secret lover. Moussi threw himself into a series of deep readings and fervent discussions about the nature of God and Mary Magdalene. Though most of the other members of the organization had been there much longer than him, Moussi was soon head and shoulders ahead of them in the eyes of Bougenek. His commitment led to a major shakeup in the cult in 1997, when André Bougenek suddenly died. Surprisingly, control of Far West didn't go to any of the cult members who'd been there for years. Instead, it fell to Moussi. He took on his new role with gusto. For a while, he stuck rigorously to Bougenac's beliefs. He interpreted his mentor's writings in regular ceremonies with the rest of the members, similar to a typical Christian service. But as the years wore on, he grew frustrated. He felt Far West was too stagnant. Most of the members treated the group like an academic hobby rather than a religion to devote themselves to. This was partially because, as an organization, Far West didn't seek to accomplish any external goals. They simply gathered together to dispassionately discuss numerological theories. Moussi and his twin brother Oliver even started referring to the more inactive members as Pharisees, a reference to the Pharisees of the Bible, whom Jesus often ridiculed as rigid and hypocritical. Eventually, Moussi's frustration boiled over. On January 1st, 2001, he founded a new organization called Neo-Far, or New Lighthouse. Neo-Far built on Bougenek's past messages, but reshaped them into something darker. Unlike its predecessor, the new group focused on preparing for an imminent apocalypse. Moussi informed the members of Far West that the Day of Reckoning would come soon. But he didn't envision the apocalypse as a violent destruction of the Earth. Instead, he saw Armageddon as a rebirth for humanity, where humans would take on a new divine form. He claimed that people would accomplish this ascension with the help of angelic beings from Venus. Moreover, he told his followers that those who prepared correctly would become apostles of the new world. This meant that anyone who joined Neo-Far, along with their soulmates, would lead humanity after Armageddon. In the end, Moosey's new group poached roughly half of Far West members, about 20 people in all. The others disagreed with the new changes and effectively dissolved Far West entirely. To begin the preparations for the end of the world, the Neo-Far members, most of them couples, moved into two houses outside of Nantes in western France. The Moussi brothers had inherited real estate from their father and helped finance the group using the rent their tenants paid them. The resources allowed them to focus all their time on developing Neofar into something more involved than Far West had ever been. 
As a part of their new cooperative living situation, Moussi's 20-odd followers shared living expenses but maintained their own bank accounts. The couples that had children still sent them to attend school and maintained mostly normal lives. That seemed to be how Moussi's followers preferred it. Despite his efforts to cultivate a more passionate and involved base of devotees, the members of Neofar kept their personal and religious lives fairly separate, even as they devoted much of their energy to studying the end of the world behind closed doors. Their apocalyptic preparations seemed all too appropriate at the time. The cult members were especially affected by the September 11th tragedies, which took place less than a year after Neofar was formed. Arnaud Moussi believed the disaster was a sign of things to come. He told his followers that 9-11 was a message from God to signal the end times. He even claimed that Bouchenac had foreseen the 9-11 attacks through his numerology, but had misinterpreted the date as 11-6, which is 9-11 inverted. Moussi went on to predict that the end of the world would happen that very year, December 29, 2001. In a new religious ceremony, Moussi instructed Neofar's members to hastily prepare for the end of the world by attempting to commune with the spirits of Christian saints. They had no idea that they would soon witness something that would turn their entire belief system on its head. Toward the end of 2001, Neofar members assembled in a cathedral undercroft in the town of Vézelay. According to local superstition, the crypt was the site of Mary Magdalene's burial. Neofar believed that Magdalene had been the wife of Jesus Christ, and so they attempted to communicate with her spirit to learn the secrets of the coming apocalypse. The cult members gathered together in the small, bright crypt to perform their seance. Moussi led the group in a prayer, begging for Magdalene's help. For a moment, nothing happened. Moussi's followers held their breath, afraid to disturb the eerie silence. Then, suddenly, Moussi began contorting violently. He seized up and seemingly involuntarily outstretched his arms, letting his head hang limp. He stayed there, on his tiptoes, mimicking the iconic position of Jesus on the cross. As his followers watched in awe, Moussi's head lolled to the side and he began shouting at the top of his lungs, It is finished. A female member then yelled, Buku, 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 and collapsed. The rest of those assembled were shaken to the core. They knew their leader was divine, but wondered if this incident could be a sign of something greater. Was Arnaud Moussi the Messiah? When we return, Neofar's apocalyptic beliefs lead them to legal trouble, salacious rumors, and death. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And now back to the story. The apocalyptic cult Neophar was formed in France in 2001. Its leader, 33-year-old Arnaud Moussy, claimed he was destined to lead his followers through the biblical end of days. With that in mind, Moussy's followers got busy preparing for the end of the world, which Moussy predicted would occur on December 29, 2001. When the day came and passed without incident, Moussi simply pushed the date back to February 25, 2002. With his affable nature and good sense of humor, Moussi was able to laugh off the miscalculation. He claimed that he'd made a mathematical mistake when he determined the original date of the apocalypse, but that he'd since corrected it. His followers didn't question the postponement too much. On February 6th, their faith was rewarded with yet another miracle. (gasps) Supposedly on that day, a young cult member named Josephine fell into a sudden trance. For two days, she rambled incoherently in a catatonic state. Oliver Moussi, Arnaud's twin brother, frantically wrote down what she said in her days. She apparently repeatedly referred to herself as André and declared that it was time to reveal Arnaud's true nature to the group. The Moussi brothers were convinced that Josephine was channeling the spirit of André Bougenec, their mentor and the founder of Far West. Guided by an invisible presence, Josephine declared that Arnaud Moussi was the reincarnated Christ. The news impressed Moussi's followers and made them more confident than ever in his apocalyptic prophecies. Strangely, Josephine seemed to be the only one who wasn't overjoyed by the revelation. A month after supposedly channeling Bouchenek's spirit, she and her boyfriend left the cult permanently. Once Josephine was gone, Moussi set about consolidating his power. Now that he could claim a direct relationship with God, he felt he deserved greater authority over his followers. One of his first actions was to take more control over his followers' relationships. In Far West theology, every man needed to find his Amser, or soul sister, to get into heaven. In Neophar, Arnaud Moussi took this belief to the next level. The members of the cult lived cooperatively, most of them under the same roof. As a result, Moussi could study each couple closely and determine for himself whether everyone was compatible. If he felt two people were ill-suited for each other, he started separating them and giving them each new partners instead, even if they were both married. It's likely that Moussi had ulterior motives for interfering with his followers' love lives. At some point, his own wife left him, so it's possible the couple swapping was a pretext to cure his own loneliness. But that wasn't what he told his followers. He insisted that he wasn't just separating married couples. Instead, he was reuniting heavenly souls that were meant to be together. According to Moussi's brother, Oliver, this kind of couple swapping only happened a few times. For instance, after Oliver's own wife left him, Moussi assigned another cult member named Nadine to be his soul sister. Oliver got along with Nadine well, but there was a problem. 
Nadine was already married to a man named Jeremy Trosset. But reportedly, Trosset wasn't upset by the news that he was losing his wife. He said he was happy for Nadine and realized that he wasn't a good husband for her. He even congratulated Oliver when he found out that the new couple was pregnant. Trosset may have felt there was no reason to get too worked up in the moment. After all, he assumed the end of the world was fast approaching. But it wasn't. The world kept on spinning, even after February 25, 2002. In response, Moussi once again rescheduled the apocalypse, this time for September the 2nd. But long before then, Neofar encountered more troubles. The families of several members had alerted local authorities about the cult a couple of months before, when their relatives hadn't made it home for Christmas. At the time, the followers had believed the world was going to end that December. To police, Neofar sounded eerily similar to the Order of the Solar Temple, a cult whose horrific murder-suicides had shocked France less than a decade before. From 1994 to 1997, more than 70 members of the Order of the Solar Temple had killed themselves or each other in Quebec, Switzerland, and France. With such a traumatic memory fresh in the minds of authorities, police and the government leapt to crack down on any cult that seemed similarly dangerous. At the beginning of March 2002, the members of Neofar were brought in for questioning. Detectives spoke to neighbors, followers of the cult, and even the children of cult members. In the end, the investigation turned up nothing of consequence. The members of Neofar may have had strange beliefs, but none of them seemed in immediate danger. Moreover, the teachings of the cult had nothing to do with suicide. Musi always framed the apocalypse as positive and nonviolent. As for the children of the cult members, they were still attending school and seemed unaffected by their family's zeal. Satisfied that Neofar posed no immediate harm to themselves or others, the police left Musi and his followers alone. But even though it didn't lead to any legal action, the investigation had a dramatic effect on the resolve of Moussi's followers. Reporters mercilessly mocked Arnaud Moussi's claim that he was the reincarnated Jesus Christ, as well as his repeated failed attempts to predict the end of the world. Their satirical articles and condescending interviews unnerved and embarrassed many in Neofar. Due to the intense public pressure, many people left his side, including most of the original 20 members. Only a handful of people remained in the group by the middle of 2002. Those who stayed were completely unprepared for the disaster that awaited them. On July 14, 2002, while walking down a street, Jeremy Trosset suddenly threw himself in front of a car. He was struck and killed instantly. Trosset had left no note explaining his actions, and authorities were mystified as to what caused his suicide. The tragedy didn't end with Trosset either. The following day, another Neofar member named Claude climbed the historical palace Chateau de Clermont and leapt out a window. He was not injured by the fall, but the local media was shocked by the incident. On the 16th, Claude's wife, Sylvie, climbed the Chateau de Clermont as well. She stood on the tallest tower of the castle, naked with a rose in her teeth. A woman saw her from a window and screamed at the sight, causing Sylvie to fall. 
Though she was not seriously hurt, Sylvie was still taken to a hospital and examined by a psychiatrist. Neither Sylvie nor Claude revealed why they climbed the chateau. They also refused to say whether they had intended to kill themselves or whether the falls were accidental. Once word got out that all three of these high-profile apparent suicide attempts were part of the same cult, the media circus returned, this time in full force. A few weeks later, journalists claimed a third person had climbed the chateau, but was talked down by a passerby, though it wasn't clear who the supposed victim was or what became of them. Arnaud Moussi fervently denied his teachings had anything to do with Jeremy Trosset's death. He also denied that the leaps made by Claude and Sylvie were suicide attempts at all. But to outside eyes, what had once been an amusing group of people with strange beliefs was now a public menace. At first, they'd enjoyed laughing at Arnaud's doomsday prophecies and his belief in aliens. But now all the humor was gone. The public were convinced that Neofar's apocalyptic obsessions were the same kind that had led to the Order of the Solar Temple mass suicides. It was hard for Musi to fight the public's perception because the cult members who'd leapt from the chateau refused to explain themselves. Their unwavering silence led the media to assume that Musi, as the leader of Neofar, was fully to blame for the tragedies. Even those who believed Musi hadn't directly ordered the suicides still found him at fault for the incidents. Some speculated that Trosset was distraught over losing his wife, or that he'd become depressed after finding out she'd gotten pregnant by Oliver Musi. The theory made sense. According to psychologist Romeo Vitelli, romantic attachments can become intimately intertwined with an adult's sense of identity. Further studies have shown a positive correlation between the disillusion of serious relationships and suicidal ideation. Moussi forcibly separating Trosset from his wife could easily have led to his suicide. But that didn't explain Claude and Sylvie's motivations. The public was stumped. Were Claude and Sylvie both finally tired of waiting for the apocalypse to come? Or were their jumps caused by more personal frustrations? Moussi's mismanagement of the PR controversy raised doubt that he truly was the manipulative mastermind the media sometimes portrayed him to be. As religious expert Susan Palmer wrote, Arnaud Moussi does not appear to have been a particularly effective brainwasher. For Neofar shows an extremely high defection rate. 14 out of 20 members defected within one and a half years. But even years later, we can only speculate about the true reasons for their actions. Neither Claude nor Sylvie ever publicly talked about why they jumped. They never publicly blamed Moussi for their actions, but they also refused to leap to his defense, even as the media rabidly denounced him. Instead, Moussi was left to his own devices. At the time, he attempted to use his affable charm to downplay the events. He even invited journalists to Neofar to demystify the sect's inner workings, but to no avail. When it was clear his attempts to court the press had failed, Musi and six of his followers tried the opposite tactic. They shut themselves in a house for weeks, possibly in an attempt to wait out the media blitz. But Musi's silence backfired, and more and more people started to worry that a fresh tragedy was imminent. 
Coming up, speculation about the dangers of Neofar reaches a fever pitch, and Musi faces legal consequences. At IKEA, your dream home is a blue bag away. No matter the size of your space or budget, we've got everything you need to turn your dreams into reality. And now with new lower prices on hundreds of our most popular products, bringing the dream home is even easier. Like the gray strandum wing chair, was $369, now $299. And the IKEA Plus 365 nine-piece cookware set was $129.99, now $89.99. And hundreds more. Shop new lower prices at ikea-usa.com today. Hey, welcome to Ikea, where even this desk is circular. Huh, how so? Looks pretty rectangular to me. It's because we're always looking to repair, reuse, and we love our products, like buying back your Ikea items for store credit, or shop our as-is section for great deals. You can even order free spare parts. Get on the circular path for a more sustainable future. Still a rectangle. Get started at ikea-usa.com slash circular. Visit ikea-usa.com slash circular for as-is information and buyback and resale terms and conditions. Spare parts not available for all products. And now, the conclusion to the story. The apocalyptic French cult Neophar fell under intense media scrutiny in 2002 after a series of suicide attempts. The self-proclaimed messiah and accused guru of the cult, 34-year-old Arnaud Mossi, was suspected of encouraging his followers to take their lives. As Moussi largely remained silent in the face of the controversy, news reports strayed deeper and deeper into speculation. Articles eventually implied that Neofar was planning a mass suicide around Moussi's latest apocalyptic projection, October 24, 2002. The media had little specific evidence to support these claims, but to most outsiders, Neofar's plan seemed obvious. Now, the reports led to further police action. On October 16, 2002, authorities arrested Arnaud Moussi under charges related to the Abu Picard anti-cult law. The relatively new legislation allowed police to arrest Moussi under the suspicion that he'd manipulated Jeremy Trosset into dying by suicide. Moussi was detained for 48 hours and forced to appear at a hearing. There, the court ordered Moussi to cease contact with all remaining members of Neofar while he awaited trial. He complied, and without their leader, the group petered out. But the story of the Neofar was not over, as its self-proclaimed messiah still waited to find out if he was guilty of suicidal manipulation. Moussi was the first individual to be targeted by the Abu Picard law. This controversial piece of legislation was co-authored by right-wing Senator Nicola Abu and Socialist National Deputy Catherine Picard in 2001. Introduced in the wake of the Order of the Solar Temple murder-suicides, the law allowed the prosecution of gurus who are found to be guilty of psychologically manipulating people or brainwashing them. It was designed to give the French government the leeway to prevent people from committing such atrocities again. The trouble was, brainwashing is a highly controversial concept in the scientific community. The first serious scientific studies of it were during the Korean War, after scientists Robert J. Lifton and Edgar Schein noticed that many American prisoners of war had converted to communism in captivity. They attributed the prisoners' shift of ideology to the harsh conditions and social pressure around them. Since Shine and Lipton's reports, experts have gone back and forth about whether brainwashing is even possible to prove in court. 
In the original text of the Abu Picard Law, the cult leader could be theoretically convicted for psychological manipulation of their followers. However, this language was subsequently changed so that in order to convict a cult leader, the prosecution would have to prove that they were guilty of abut faiblesse, or abuse of weak-minded people. In order to prove abut faiblesse, the court needed to show that Musi had somehow caused psychological or physical harm, or mass suicide. The unprecedented case took time to prepare. In October of 2004, 37-year-old Arnaud Moussi finally faced his charges in court. This trial was a media sensation. Papers from around the world converged on the small French courtroom. They all watched as the prosecution called in psychiatrist and cult expert Jean-Marie Abgral to the stand to bolster their case. Abgral had worked with law enforcement investigating the Order of the Solar Temple murders in 1995. He'd also been the expert witness against Michel Tabachnik, a high-profile member of the cult. Abgral felt his professional reputation was on the line in the trial of Arnaud Moussi. He was determined to get Moussi convicted and eliminate another dangerous cult before it could put the public safety at risk. On the stand, Abgral painted Arnaud Moussi as the type of charismatic cult leader that the media was all too used to hearing about a remorseless man who would let other people kill themselves for him or his organization. He was more than able to prove his point thanks to a deposition from a former cult member. Josephine, the former member of Neofar who had supposedly been possessed by the spirit of André Bujanek, now testified against Moussi. She claimed that she never fell into a trance at all and that Moussi had used her to pretend to be a messiah. She also described him as a seducer and manipulator who knew how to overwhelm people's minds. Moussi fought back by arguing that members of Neofar weren't weak-minded people who could be manipulated at all. Several of them were doctors and teachers who were more than capable of making their own choices. In his opinion, the trial was politically motivated. He believed the government wanted to make an example out of him in order to serve as a deterrent against other cult activity. On reflection, Moussi remarked, it was clear the National Assembly had a new law and they wanted to try it out on a little group to make an example, not a big and powerful sect like Scientology, which has a lot of money to defend itself. In the end, Moussi's arguments failed to sway the jury. They found him guilty of a boot faiblesse. He was sentenced to three years in prison and fined what is equivalent to 150,000 euros or 170,000 U.S. dollars today. A year later, Moussi appealed the decision unsuccessfully. Neofar remains the only instance when the Abu Picard law has been applied against a cult. If the French government had intended to use Moussi as an example, then it was apparently effective. The issue remains a sensitive one to this day. Some see the conviction of Arnaud Moussi as a proactive, preventative measure, but others believe it was a miscarriage of justice, where a small group of eccentrics that had suffered a tragedy were punished to set a new legal precedent. Unfortunately, we'll never know what drove the members of Neofar to suicidal ideation. Hopefully, for the family of Jérémy Trosset and all the others affected by the actions of the cult, 
Arnaud Moussi's sentencing serves as some small measure of comfort. Thanks again for tuning into Cults. We'll be back next Tuesday with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Cults, for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Cults on Spotify, just open the app and type Cults in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Cults was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Jaron Cohen, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Cults was written by Matthew Teamstra, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon, and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson.